On further reading, we cover the career of actor and notorious Hellraiser Oliver Reed. On our first episode, we will be talking about 1969's The Assassination Bureau. I'm Leslie Hatton, and these are my co-hosts, Doug Tilly and Liam O'Donnell. Hi, everybody. Hey, everybody. We're talking about Oliver Reed on a podcast. I'm pretty excited. So what brought you two to Oliver Reed? Uh, what, what made you interested in his career? Why do you find him fascinating? Liam, I'm going to let you go first on this one. Quite honestly, it was The Devils. Uh, I was aware of Oliver Reed previously because of The Brood um, and something else that's escaping me. Uh, so I kind of knew who he was, but I, I didn't quite have the obsession. And um, watching The Devils, I was like, God damn, this guy is f- great, and I need more of him in my life. And so that started a journey to discover more Oliver Reed, uh, which honestly is is uh, still not even close to where I would like it to be. So when... I knew that this was an idea for us to do on Cinema Smorgasbord. I got super excited because I haven't gotten to watch as many Oliver Reed movies as I would like, you know? He had such a diverse career, and that's one of the things that makes him, I think, a really good subject for a podcast because uh, we can kind of dart around in terms of his own personal history from the kind of kitchen sink dramas to really mainstream stuff like Gladiator at the very end of his career. But the movie that I was introduced to Oliver Reed through is a Ken Russell movie, but it's not The Devil's. It's actually uh, the adaptation of Tommy, the musical. Oh, sure. That's a really really odd one uh, to first encounter Oliver Reed because my first, you know, I was a huge, huge fan of The Who when I was a teenager. So, you know, getting to see this movie, I'm like, what's this all about? Having like no background in who Ken Russell was or anything like that. You can just imagine, you know, going into that movie completely cold. (laughs) My reaction to it, my first reaction was, who is this guy? who cannot sing, who is one of the leads in this movie. (laughs) Who who is Uh, this guy doing his best Gary Glitter impersonation? (laughs) Hopefully only in terms of singing. Uh, Yes. uh, But it's it's one of those things where even though uh, his vocal performance is unique in that movie, and he's not the only one. I mean, Jack Nicholson sings in that movie for fuck's sake. But I mean, he still, his charisma still comes through. And his presence still comes through. And I was still fascinated by him. But that was like, it's like he registered for me in that film. And certainly I saw him in like in parts all throughout, you know, because it's certainly up until when I was really getting into movies, he was still a working actor. So uh, he's still someone I would see pop up. I only saw The Devils for the first time about three or four years ago. And, you know, I loved Oliver Reed before that. But seeing that movie, just like with Liam, it was like a revelation. I'm like, oh my God, this person isn't just a fine actor who can work both in lead and supporting roles. This is a guy who can can command the screen to such an extent that you cannot take your eyes off of him. That literally you could, you take the part of the people in that movie where they look at him with this kind of sense of awe. I watched that 
as a as a, uh, a viewer uh, to him as a performer, he really does kind of capture that. So yeah, he's he has a kind of a unique charisma. Then there's also the outside of the acting part, the fact that right. he has such a hell raising reputation as as you know as someone who. And it, this is something that I feel conflicted about. I think Liam, you've already kind of touched upon this a little bit, but just the idea that, that this is per, a person who his his exploits were so notorious. And it's not something that I necessarily want to valorize or glamorize in any way. He was obviously someone who struggled with addiction his entire life. But also some of those stories are so wild and so unique that it's all kind of part of his myth at this point. Yes, agreed. That's that's really, really good point. I'm not fully aware of all the stories. So I think that's part of not, you know, that's not what the show's about, but it'll probably come up more some mm -hmm. of the some of the extent of it. Uh, but I knew that once I kind of became more aware of who he was that there was at least issues um and i've now since heard enough other people talk about it that i'm probably going to be bummed out by some of the actual <laughs> details of his you life probably will. but to be honest like and you know i said it i've said it kind of jokingly but it, it really is true um i don't have a lot of people who I love their work, but they actually were a monster. And so, like, this will be the time for me to kind of, like, work through some of those feelings because I often get to be, like, you know, lots of people say, oh, you know, I really like this person but uh, as an artist, but, you know, I'm really frustrated by this, that, or the other. And uh, quite honestly, I get to judge those people because most of the time I'm like, yeah, that person sucks. Fuck you. And so, like, this is my... <laughs> This is my one time to be like, I don't know. I don't know. And it, again, it's not just because the conflict between work and life, right? It is there's something about his work that represents something that I don't just appreciate in a detached way, but I find in certain cases very moving and very meaningful and very like interesting. I mean, I, you know. I have a little bit of a crush on him, you know, and that yeah. is like it, that's this is the first time that I've felt this strongly about a performer and then also thought, oh, shit, is that OK? And so I think it's good to work those out. Yeah. And I, I don't know where the, I'll end up by the end, but I still think it's worth the conversation. Well, because further reading is part of the Cinema Smorgasbord family, I think it it kind of fits in with the idea of artists who are very talented but maybe not appreciated in the way that they should be appreciated so absolutely as as far as as reed you know like we've discussed he does have a reputation a well-earned reputation as a a boozer you know he was also a womanizer and you know the the cliche term hellraiser but it is true but like you said liam he he does or he did have a gift for putting forth these really affecting dramatic turns in films, um, very moving, but he was also kind of a ham. I mean, he, he was very charming. <laughs> he was very goofy. He did a lot of physical comedy. And of course, like you said, you have a crush on him. So I think it's pretty obvious that he has a lot of sex appeal. So I think with further reading, we hope to kind of illuminate all those aspects of his career and his life and bring them to a wider audience who maybe only know about, you know, his drunken talk show performances where he, you know, gets in a fight with Shelly Winters and she pours a drink on his head. 
<laughs> but more of him as a as a tremendous actor, both physically and, you know, charisma wise. But, you know, he also happened to be kind of a outlandish drunk at the same time. I think we have to be a little bit careful in regards to how we approach that. You know, I said before about not not glamorizing or valorizing. I don't <laughs> think that's going to be much of an issue with the the crowd that we have here. But also the fact that some of these stories are pretty amusing. I, I think that we can still juggle that a little bit. One of the things yeah. that you just mentioned, Leslie, is that on Cinema Smorgasbord, we have we cover a lot of unrecognized performers or performers who maybe just didn't get their due uh, entirely in terms of the scope of their career. But also what goes along with some of those performers and some of the, the people that we cover is that they do they, that they are not just one thing, right? That they sometimes do have these um, elements of their past where they have done things that are they're not proud of or done things that are in retrospect in particular look a little bit rough. And and I think we can be honest about that while also still recognizing that these are extremely talented and sometimes troubled people uh, and that these uh, difficulties can come from various places. I'm like Liam. I know about a lot of the stories in Oliver Reed's career, but I don't feel like I have a huge grasp. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be part of this podcast. Uh, and, and there might be times when we feel a little conflicted in regards to, you know, hey, is it right to have a podcast about a person who did this and this and this? But uh, I think that's something that we can kind of cope with and, and reckon with as we go through these movies and we talk about his, uh, his, both his performances and his life around the time of those performances. So our first episode in Further Reading is going to be about the Assassination Bureau. It was released on March 10th in 1969. So it was kind of at the, not the full height of Reed's popularity, but pretty close. Like his star was ascending quite rapidly. It was directed by Basil Dearden. Okay, now is it Basil or Basil? Because I've been told <laughs> that for the name it's Basil, but for the but for the herb it's Basil. So I'm, I'm you know, I think that's we a can get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> but this was actually Dearden's uh, second to last film, his penultimate film, because he died in 1970. So Dearden had a, a really long career, which is interesting because this is sort of at the beginning of. Reads kind of, like I said, his, his big ascent into popularity. And we're going to take our first break now, and we will be right back to talk more about the Assassination Bureau and Oliver Reed's role in the film. Our proper title is the Assassination Bureau. Limited. You admit you take human life for money. Money is life. Don't you agree? You're a monster. Oliver Reed, a monster? Impossible. Impetuous, perhaps. It means, my friends, that you must kill me, or I will kill you. Careless, possibly. Considerate, certainly. A tender lover, of course. Miss Winter, surrender. Why not? A master of diplomacy. Since our relationship became less formal, I observe a tendency on your part to nag. A nag? Diana Rigg? That Avengers adventurous. Surely there's never been a more delightfully unpredictable bundle of feminine. For her first assignment, a lady journalist tracks down the head of an organization offering to kill for money people deserving of such a fate. She thinks herself very clever when the head of the organization agrees to take a contract out with himself as the target. But what she doesn't know is that her paper's owner is second in command in the bureau and has his own reasons for supporting her challenge. The Assassination Bureau was directed by Basil Dearden. It was his penultimate film. 
Uh, Dearden had a very long career. Uh, he was most known probably for direct, co-directing the British anthology film Dead of Night, which was released in 1945. He directed Frida from 1947, 1950's The Blue Lamp, and 1959's Sapphire. Now, his final film was a pretty interesting one. It was called The Man Who Haunted Himself with Roger Moore, and that came out in 1970. That's, that's a film that I've heard quite a bit about. I have not seen it, but now based on having watched the Assassination Bureau several times and knowing something of the plot of his final film, it makes me more interested in watching it. Uh, Dearden passed away on March 23rd, 1971. So that is why this was his second to last film. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The film was written by Michael Ralph, who is best known as an art director and a producer, but he also wrote... Uh, 1960's The Man in the Moon, 1965's Masquerade, and he wrote The Man Who Haunted Himself, which Jordan also directed. But the film was based on Jack London's unfinished novel called The Assassination Bureau Limited. Now, this was not completed by London before he died, but it was posthumously published in 1963. And it was finished by the thriller writer Robert L. Fish, who's also known as Robert L. Pike. And this, of course, generated a lot of publicity. The novel is a little more serious in tone than the movie, but the New York Times review at the time called it delightfully ridiculous. So I guess they kind of seized upon the alternate history uh, that comes about in the in the movie and also the novel where what you think happened to generate World War One actually didn't happen. This is what really I think, happened. I think when Jack London started writing it, this is just what I was reading over the last few days, he was actually writing it in around like 1910 or so. So it would have been contemporary history he was writing Oh, about well. wow. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even realize that. Well, that makes it even more interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely like that. So the film, other, other than Oliver Reed, it stars Diana Riggs. So she plays a journalist, Sonia Winter, and uh, Oliver Reed plays Ivan Dragomilov who is a British man, but with Russian parentage, who was actually raised in the school system in in the UK and England, which he talks about when we meet him in the film. And Winter's employer, the Lord Bostwick, who owns the paper which she writes for, is played by Telly Savalas. And of course, he is also secretly a member of the Bureau. And he has his own designs on getting control of the Bureau for his own reasons. What do we think of the fact that this could almost be a template for Bond playing, or for Oliver Reed playing James Bond. Because I don't know if any of our listeners know, but there was a rumor that Bond was supposed to be played by Oliver Reed, but it never happened. And this would have been after Sean Connery left the role, but prior to, well prior to George Lazenby, and then, of course, Roger Moore, etc. So the story of this, um, and first, actually, we should probably talk about what Oliver Reed was doing in 1969. Um, as we discussed, he had lost out on playing Bond, and there's an interview with Roger Ebert right around the time that this movie was released, so March of 1969, and in the interview it's discussed, you know, that he does not get to play Bond. But you also get a real taste of Reed's sort of ridiculous behavior 
You know, he's going on about Richard Harris and he's kind of got this like competition with Harris where, you know, they're going to who's the toughest guy who can drink who under the table. And he's he's going on about fruits and paisley shirts. You know, it's like a very it, it almost feels like, you know, like the Gallagher brothers or something, you know, like, you know, like, oh, this 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 bleeding poofta. Over in blah, you know, like, even though that's not even how, that's not even how Reed spoke. Like, he was very erudite. Like, when you listen to him talk, he's got a very, like, posh accent. He And he comes across as very well-spoken. But, you know, when you read this, it's like, oh, my God, he sounds like a total buffoon. But, you know, I have my thoughts on that. And I, I just want to know if you think that in an interview like this, you know, when he knows that he's playing, well, not to playing to the camera, but he's like playing to the media. Do you think that maybe he's like maybe putting it on a little thick to sort of live up to, you know, what his reputation is? Because that's sometimes the idea that I get. And I think that kind of think, goes into the whole Bond thing, which I want to talk about. Sure. I mean, I, I certainly that comes across in the interview that he certainly is playing up his image to a certain extent. I, I, it, it's interesting to think that maybe that hurt him in regards to uh, his potential for playing Bond. But, but in terms of, in terms of, you know, his public perception, I mean, he was in the newspapers all the time and he definitely seemed to court that level of notoriety. And it's, you know, something that you mentioned just a moment ago that, you know, he was an educated, he certainly sounded very educated when he, when he would talk. And but that was some of the weird contradiction of some of these British actors, like a Peter O'Toole or a Richard mm. Harris at this time period, where they were like, when in, in interviews they could be so intelligent and, and you know very well read, and but they were also notorious for these antics at the very same time. I I don't know if there is necessarily a American or Canadian in our, in, our, in my case, uh, like a, a version of something like that, where you know usually our our celebrities who are notorious for their antics, they're also notorious for not necessarily being necessarily the most intelligent people in the world. But for some reason, in the UK, <laughs> some of their celebs, you know, and this this goes with uh, some uh, the musicians of the time period as well, right? You would you would yeah. read these these interviews with them, and they'd come off as so erudite and learned, and and but then you'd read about them being fall down drunk at this event or that event. It's a really interesting contradiction and one that really exists within Oliver Reed, which is one, again, one of the really fascinating things about him. Yeah. Like in, in the interview with, um, in the interview with Roger Ebert, you know, he kind of just lets him go. Like he just doesn't really say much. Like, I mean, obviously, you know, this is an edited interview, right? It's not like a, it's not like a fanzine interview where they, they left all the, the text in, but it's kind of interesting that, you know, he doesn't really he doesn't really say much. He just kind of lets Reed characterize himself. But um, I just have a natural skepticism about this whole the refined Bond image. Oh, mm. and I'm so glad you said that. I want to hear what you have to say about that. And then I'm going to tell you what I think, because I have so, a lot of thoughts on oh, that. OK, so like the idea is that Reed is spending too much time drinking, fighting, and womanizing to then be seen as James Bond. But what the fuck does James Bond do in these movies? <laughs> I know! All he does is drink and fight and, you know, sometimes uh, uh, seduce women and sometimes abuse women, right? Like, yes! He is in, in – in, well, okay, so I was thinking about this when you guys were talking about that, that interview, and – one of the things I've wondered before with Oliver Reed is to what extent 
his public persona fuels his public persona and it, you know what i mean like i think yes famous people sometimes get caught in this thing where it's like if you think i'm gonna be this way then i'll just do that i'll just live it to right, your right, expectations right. Mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that all these behaviors have real world consequences on your body and your mind and so i call that the iggy pop syndrome <laughs> right 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 but, and, and uh, he fully admits that that's what happened you know right he totally right. did that although i will say it's funny with iggy <laughs> pop the 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 funny story with with iggy pop to me is like um the, did you guys ever hear that craig ferguson's story about nico craig let's go Fer- with the idea that at least one of our listeners haven't craig ferguson was a was in a punk band and he was asked to be yes. a fill-in drummer for Nico. And after the show, Nico said, "You're wild, like like Iggy. You'll be dead soon," which is so funny because she's dead, and wow. Kurt Ferguson and Iggy Pop are both alive. And <laughs> yeah, I just, I just think like, I just think like, like, but I, but I think your example is is correct, which is like people live into a certain persona, and it starts to uh, blur the lines between what's real and what's not. And I think for Oliver Reed, it probably stung to be told that he's too wild for Bond because in a lot of ways his life is just an exaggeration of what James Bond is supposed (laughs) to be. You know what I mean? Like, and and it's part of the whole British thing that basically James Bond is a soccer hooligan with a slightly different accent, right? Like he is so true. He's just everything that's like dangerous about the, the idea of British manhood, the caricature of British manhood only from the rich people standpoint. So he has to be very sophisticated while he's being a drunken, violent abuser. Like, and that's not an exaggeration, right? That's in the books. It's in the movies. Like that's who the character is. And so to me, it's weird because it feels almost like a class decision, which is strange because Oliver Reed is that uptight class, right? Like he is I know. that guy. He just doesn't, I guess, have the refinement he's supposed to have. But I also think his, his it, again, I'm no expert. This is part of a learning process. The view, the view I have right now that maybe will change over time is that some of his brashness was a rejection of the ways that his class identity were restrictive to him. And I don't think that was a complicated, you know, he's not like a, a peace punk rejecting his class upbringing. It's more that he didn't like the ways that his class identity limited him from doing whatever the fuck he wants to do. And I think well that said. that feeling of restriction, it wasn't political, it was personal, but I think it caused him to exaggerate and that exaggeration became his actual fucking personality, which is like, may sound like, uh, uh, a little extreme, but I think that happens to, like we said, a lot of people where you 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 start to live into something almost as a form of rebellion, and pretty soon that's who you fucking are, and you have to figure out a way to like change your life if it's if it's bad. Not everyone probably has that experience, and it's actually that bad for them. But I think a lot of people, it, it really it really destroys their lives. I also think Oliver Reed thought himself as a very as a very rock and roll individual. Yes, I right? agree. Oh, I agree. Hang out well. With- Rock and roll Keith musicians Moon. like Keith Moon. Right, exactly. Yes. They, were, they were good friends in the 70s. And as someone who thought of himself uh, in that kind of, of, of class of people or, or that category of people, it's a little hard to think of him in the Sean Connery Bond mold as you know the, the, the Bond that would complain about listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. I mean, it, it, the, the version of Bond <laughs> that he would be would be a different era of Bond, which at the time that they were considering casting him, 
didn't exist yet, right? I mean, yes. he's certainly a lot closer to a George Lazenby style Bond than he would be a Sean Connery Bond. But of course, George Lazenby as Bond didn't exist at the point that they were considering him. So you wonder, I mean, I wonder if there was another consideration after George Lazenby lo- lost the part and whether he might have been a better mold at that point, but maybe his antics at that <laughs> had gone even too far to make him yeah. uh, seriously in consideration at that point. Well, that's true. And a, a couple points on that. I, I'm reading this uh, Huffington Post article, uh, was Oliver Reed too rough to be cast as James Bond? And my first thought is, so um, Albert Broccoli had actually written down, and this is this is quoted in um, Cliff Goodwin's biography of Oliver Reed called Evil Spirits. So there's a letter where Broccoli writes, with Reed, we would have had a far greater problem to destroy his image and remold him as James Bond, and we didn't have the time or money to do that. So he also says, or the biographer says, Oliver was probably within a sliver of being cast as Bond, but by 1968, his affairs were public and he was already drinking and fighting as far away from the fine Bond image as you could get. Now that to me- Yeah, drinking and fighting. (laughs) Yeah, that to me says that, and I hate to sound like, well, actually, but the movie Bond, the Broccoli franchise Bond, is so different from the Ian Fleming novel Bond. And that's always been a real tension for me because I'm a big fan of Bond. And to me, like Broccoli and company wanted to remold Bond as like a Roger Moore. But Bond as a character is way more like Oliver Reed, way more like Daniel Craig, because he's described he's got a scar on his face. He's got black hair. You know, he's got blue eyes like he's kind of a thug. But you don't get that thuggishness in the films because, you know, I I guess a a more modern counterpart would be like Jason Statham. You know, what what to me Bond is almost like. But so I find that really interesting. But the other thing you said, um, well, you sound like you're going to say something. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I do think we're dancing Mm -hmm. around something slightly, which is that it's not that Oliver Reed was wrong or even in the eyes of of uh, of Broccoli that he was the wrong choice for Bond, I think what they're really getting at is that they were worried that he would embarrass them, right? That, yes. That his outside yes. the film antics would embarrass them in a way, right? Look, he's, in terms of, of hey, so if a true. human being was to be James Bond, that he might have been perfect, and he could obviously play those roles because he plays it in the very film that we're talking about today in a very similar right. manner. But it's just like, well... While he's making uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, do you want to have stories in the press about your lead actor going out and getting in drunken brawls? I think that's that's what they were concerned about mostly. Yeah, yeah, that's I, true. I do wonder, though, it, when I think about it in this context of this film, which we're about to get to as well, there is a way in which he can't help but like – it feels like every scene of this movie, he's basically winking at the camera, which he's not – he really only looks at not directly the, end. the camera <laughs> at, at the end. But every oh, scene... Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. I love that scene. But every scene, his whole vibe is a bit like, we all know this is ridiculous, right? Like, that's sort of his thing. And and it, and it it's not his essence, because we now know that he has a lot of roles where he's still Oliver Reed, but it works. And no part of you is going, this is silly. It's it, He can be not silly. And in fact, he can be... One of my favorite serious actors ever, honestly, just in the power of some of these performances. 
But I do wonder if at the time there might have not just been a worry about his public persona, but an idea of like, does he inject humor into a character that's already on the precipice of a caricature? Like it's so I, close. I mean, to but that, that goes to the George Lake. That goes to the yeah. George Lazenby thing, though, right? Because George right, Lazenby right, literally right. talks to the camera in in uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and does bring those camp elements. But you do wonder, you know, it, the camp of that movie, which did not obviously sit well with audiences that much in the early 1970s, and there was a lot of issues with the Lazenby character. That I really love that movie, but there were. But just Same. the idea, it's like, does Bond, can Bond do camp? Well, I think it can, but at this point, they, maybe they didn't even consider it. It's still a few years before that movie. Right. It's interesting because Lazenby's Bond girl in On Her Majesty's Secret Service is Diana Rigg. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, it's like this is a really weird thing because she she is my favorite Bond female, really. Um, she's and Telly Savalas is in that movie too. This feels like a dry run for that movie in some ways. Yes, I know. Oh, Telly Savalas is so great in Assassination Bureau. Like he's such a scenery Mm -hmm. chewer. I love it. He's so great. Um yeah, like I and you know, I mean, we could we could talk about James Bond for I mean, I could talk about James Bond forever. So, <laughs> but I do want to talk more about the movie and I mean, talk about tension between you know the real James Bond versus cinematic James Bond, but also the tension in the Assassination Bureau itself, a movie that was based on a book that's a you know was written in early nineteenth century. Or the early 20th century, and now being made in the late 60s, which you know, considerably different time period. So <laughs> there's this kind of Mary Poppins dressed, you know, Diana Rigg character, and and then you know there's like a brothel, and there's you know she's putting on a corset and all this kind of stuff. Like it's this none of this this would not like most period pieces that want to depict the early 20th century at the time would would not have you know made them like very graphic or you know r-rated or whatever like that's something that that's a way more postmodern convention that that we see a lot more of now but it is an interesting tension because it's a it's a pretty wholesome movie like you know she's sitting in a towel at one point diana rigg on, a, on her hotel bed and that's you know, if you think about it, a film made at the time that the movie's supposed to take place would not have shown something like that. But the movie... Yeah, it's more body than... I mean, yeah. it's, it's titillating and body, it but is. it's definitely playing with it. I mean, it's, it definitely yes. wants the audience to be having a lot of fun. That's why the fact that it's centrally about people murdering each other, and sometimes murdering large groups of people, is what makes it so kind of, of, of amusing. And even now, I mean, it, there is something uh, very off-kilter about the tone of this movie. Yes, it's 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 actually it's actually pretty cute. Like I think it's kind of I think it's kind of very charming, um, and I do think it's interesting that when you brought up Doug about that the novel was written before World War One, but that you know it's it does posit like this alternate history. So okay, we're just gonna just get into the boring stuff that you know World War One started when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria who was the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. I mean, this is like, you know, pre-European Union. Uh, he and his wife were assassinated by a Bosnian Serb student. And this student was part of a group of Bosnian assassins. And they were a student revolutionary group that became known as Young Bosnia. But the reason that they wanted to assassinate Ferdinand was to free Bosnia and Herz- Herzegovina, or Herzegovina, I'm not sure how to pronounce it correctly, 
um, from Austria-Hungarian Austria rule and establish a common Yugoslavian state. So, of course, this precipitated the July crisis, which led to the war being declared on Serbia and the start of the First World War. But in the Assassination Bureau, the the Bureau is assassinating, uh, assassinating, the Bureau is assassinating rich and powerful people who should be killed for a moral purpose. So they're actually trying to kill people that are bad people. Whereas, you know, there, there's almost like, there's almost like a secret agenda. I mean, there is a secret agenda that Telly Savalas has because he, what he wants to do is he wants to kill all the heads of state of the various European countries. They're trying to avoid a war in the film because a Balkan prince has been assassinated because a bomb that was intended for Alvarez's character, Ivan, he wasn't killed by it. It was the Balkan prince who was killed. So then all the heads right. of state get together and they're like, oh, you know, we got to have a peace conference. So Telly Savalas is like, all right, we're going to drop a bomb on these people. And then I'm going to, what he says, assassinate Europe. So he almost wants to be like, I don't know if he wants like an, like sort of a lawless society where then he can take over or what his political goal is, but that's that's how he puts it. So it's kind I mean, of he, interesting. I think he, it's mostly a financial motive, right? Because he tells right. all the people true. to start buying buying stocks in different uh, weapons and things like that because the idea that war will be – he's a war profiteer basically, which again, I think people in the late 60s would be something that they would really recognize in yeah. their own political yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. So, I mean, it, and, and you're right. It's funny. There's actually um, – it's a pretty bloodless movie for having having mm -hmm. so many murders. Um, in fact, I think there's a YouTube video where they do like a body count or like a kill count of like how many people Oliver Reed kills in the film. And I think it's 30 people and they just sort of like put all these clips together. Like guy falls out of Zeppelin, you know, guy gets hit in the head. With, <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's pretty funny. Um, and I think actually that would have been a really funny like end credit scene or something to just have like all the murders kind of with that really weird, like song that plays. It's, it's yes. like, um, the, the, I can't think of how it goes, but something like the, the romance of love or something. It's like very, like, very like, um, like light and like romantic yeah. in this, like we'll use sort the song of song as our outro music today. Yeah. So yeah. We should, we should, we yeah, should. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really funny, but, yeah, so I, I do think that is like a, a pretty interesting tension in the movie. I mean, and it makes for like some good comic moments. Um, the tone of the movie, like we were just talking about it, it, it actually feels more like a slapstick kind of a caper film, you know, with like mm -hmm. different motives kind of crisscrossing. And then, of course, there's a romance subplot between um, – Dinah Riggs character and Oliver Reed's character between Yvonne and Sonia. And it's funny that she wants to kill him because he's killing people. But I mean, in a weird way, he's killing people that, as he puts it, should be killed. And so he wants to stop. He ends up stopping the murder of all these heads of state at the end. So it's almost like he's a weird, like, moral mercenary or something. I don't know. It's like really, it's, I mean, if you really want to get into the politics of it, that is kind of, you know, what he's doing, but uh, you know, obviously he's going to justify it 
however he wants to justify it. It's a funny justification he does in the movie proper where he talks, he asks her, it's like, uh, presumably you're for the electric chair and the guillotine and the gas chamber. And she doesn't like push back against that whatsoever. In the sense of that, the idea of somebody in a position of power using a sense of quote unquote morality or, you know, weighing the good and bad of a person to say whether they are worthy of killing or not, that sort of makes sense. But if she pushed back at all and said, no, I don't agree with those things, then his point, then his kind of uh, uh, ability to have any sort of moral uh, upmanship on her is completely removed. Um, this might be a good time, by the way, to ask, see what we all thought of the movie, because <laughs> we haven't talked about whether we liked it yet. I loved it. I think it's great. I think it's really cute. And the more I've watched it, the more I I love the little comic moments. Like one of my favorite scenes is when um, the uh, Kurt Jurgens character, um, he it, it, like puts a wig on and he, he gives them like an exploding eggplant or something. But of course, that doesn't. <laughs> go well but he he kind of gets it's a like, black pudding these, i believe <laughs> there's all oh is that what it is he, yeah it's like a, these, it's a blood worst it's a oh right okay so there's all these people dancing in this in this tavern and they're they're like they kind of get him like roped into the dancing and he's like like being brought towards the screen uh, you know and like getting carried around while he's holding this exploding sausage and like his wig is falling off and it's almost like um like a pink panther type of thing where yes, you know very his mustache so. is, is half on and they're all looking at him weird and like that part's hilarious like i i think that's really funny because i i love that kind of stuff <laughs> liam what did you think of the movie uh i like it a lot i think it's a little bit more this kind of it's very of its time uh, in its yes. goofy sixtiesness, and Doug, yes. you know that's not always my vibe. Not um, your wheelhouse, Liam. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I'm also not inherently against it. It's it's sort of a thing. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like my version of country music. Like I can't really say I hate all of it. Like there are definitely versions that I like, and I thought this was pretty fun. But immediately once it started, I thought. Oh, okay. This is not usually my thing, actually. Just just because of the level of silliness. But I gotta say, there's something mildly <clears throat> psychotic about applying this level of silliness to a movie that is essentially about murder and world domination. And the willingness to be this campy and over the top about so much. Like, because it's not just murder of, like, your ex or something. This is, like, political murder. This is, yeah. like, starting revolutions and stuff. And the movie's still, like, ta-ta-ta-ti-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta-ta. Yeah. <laughs> that exactly. I'm, like, I, I, that made it better for me. That made it more interesting for me and, and, and more fun. It's just some of the gags. Sometimes I'm laughing at the movie more than I'm oh, laughing yeah. with the movie. And that's fine. That doesn't make it bad but it, it is just a different experience than other things you know so i think that's that's a that's was a small little bit as i said before and i'll, I'll re- reiterate now like oliver reed is not a master of disguise you, you oh my I, god i have trouble believing you can disguise this man he is a i mean he's <laughs> literally a sexy gorilla he is a handsome primate <laughs> You can see if there was a crowd of people at a hundred yards, you could pick him out just because he's <laughs> so interesting. And then he also has a prominent facial scar, so it's like right. even if he wasn't just physically shaped in an interesting way, uh, you would probably notice the scar on his face. Though they do try to cover it up in a couple scenes, but it just is like there are scenes where he literally has a hat on, and he's like 
in disguise. And I think <laughs> there's no way if they were as afraid of him as they should be in this movie, because he's literally murdering his way through the <laughs> very council that's supposed to be murdering him. He's taking them all out. I any man who was large, I would just punch in the face immediately. Like if I was one of these guys, as soon as any large man approached me, I'd be like, or was near me, I'd be like, kill that guy, kill kill him. Who's that? Is that him? Kill him. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's it's it, it is a little that part's a little silly. But again, the whole movie's silly, so I just went along yeah. with it. But there was a part of my logical brain that was like, this was the guy we thought would do it. But the reason is because he's so much more charming and interesting like you get at some level that in theory though there's no evidence for this he's more moral than the men he has murdered right yeah that's what we're supposed to think they seem willing to start world war one just so they can be sure to be in charge of things and he's less interested in that and more interested in some ill-defined never talked about moral compass right Yes. Uh, but mostly you're on his side because he's charming and they're assholes. Yes. The mm-hmm. only right. one who is even as close to as charming as he is is Teddy Savalas. Uh, uh, and and uh, my man is literally telling us he wants to rule the world and be the first fascist. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's they really want you to know, like, don't also be charmed by him. He sucks. And they just keep trying to hammer it home. This is the villain. This is the villain. Yes, if, yes. If not, this would just be a movie about two sex men who want to kill each other. And you'd be like, well, I don't know whose side I'm on. They're both very handsome. you know, uh, Because that's all that's at stake here. We have no evidence that his Ivan is a good person. He's just a right. very charming person. But – in this movie, that's enough. I'm like, yeah, I hope the charming guy wins because these old dudes suck. You know, like that's oh, sort man. of my investment in the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, I had I had a lot of fun with it, despite it not being my usual vibe. Uh, I will say, like the culmination of the like we're having a fight on a zeppelin thing. At first, I really liked it because it had a very goofy kind of vibe when he's like taking out each of the individual people but eventually it just it went on a while and i got kind of like it was very hammy yeah 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 yeah. that that was the only part of the movie where i really started to be like all right i'm ready to be done with this film (laughs) Uh, uh, so it's not gonna enter my canon of oliver reed movies but i'm you know if i'm at a if i'm at a uh, at a marathon and this comes on I'm not leaving like that's uh, it'll be fun to watch with a crowd in a theater, but it's not I, I you know, it this deserves a Blu-ray release. I probably wouldn't buy it new, you know, it's I, I like that it was shot on location. I think yes, I mean, that's other true. than that's the true. other than the really bad, like compositing effects at the end with the with the Zeppelin and the and the explosion <laughs> and stuff where you're just like, oh, God, this is really bad. Um, it like this, the on location. It's like they're in Zurich, they're in the UK, they're in Paris, they're in Vienna, they're in Venice. So, you know, there's like gondoliers. Like it looks fantastic. Mm. Yeah, and it's got that globe trotting bond. It really does. Do- yeah, it, right? it really looks great. It's Which not like oh, this is this is supposed to be Paris, but it's really like Hamilton, Ontario, or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Doug, what did you think of it? Because I feel like this is more up your alley than up my alley. Tonally, it's very much more up my alley, I think. Uh, I definitely don't have any issue with uh, more of a camp tone. uh, And the fact that they lean so heavily into it is something that I found particularly fun and interesting. Also, the fact that it's somewhat transgressive. Just the idea that all of this is happening in the background 
in the lead up to one of the most bloody and horrific events in human history that is just completely ignored, right? Like not the fact the events are ignored, but just the fact that it's leading into something just so terrible. But while they're all having a grand old time, you know, running around the world and murdering each other. My only issue with the movie is that it gets a little repetitive because it very much is, he goes to this place, someone tries to kill him, he kills them instead, and there's a number of people he has to dispatch. And it's fun because you get that, and I mean, we haven't really talked about Diana Rigg yet. And this is not, like on on our Cinema Smorgasbord podcast, I don't get thirsty on those podcasts. It's not one of the, it's not just not in my wheelhouse of things that I like to do, but when it comes to Oh, well, that's why I'm here. No, I understand. And look, I'll, I'm, I, before before this, this uh, not just this podcast, but this series of further reading podcasts that we do together, my thirst for Oliver Reed will become very, very clear. And believe me, he is a very, very <laughs> handsome man. But he is overtaken. But yes, please, this... <laughs> please talk about Diana Rigg. <laughs> in this particular film. She is wonderful. Uh, not only is she, she terrific and really plays it to the hilt, even though it in some ways kind of feels like a role where it's, oh, this is a progressive woman in the early 20th century. Right, she right. Really, she really needs to give in to her, you know, uh, more animalistic needs in regards to this man. He even says to her, like, give in, that sort of thing. Right? He does. He so says, submit, submit, or and oddly enough, submit from the, or something. From the stories from, this, from the set suggested that that actually reflected a very real tension between them. Where oh, Diana yes, was yes. A very modern person, and he, you know, he is... He was who he was, and they did not get along because of that. But oddly enough, they have amazing sexual tension in regards to the film itself. And they have a really playful, you know, uh, first combative and finally, you know, in terms of a relationship style chemistry in this movie. And it's really, really fun to see them play off each other. But just just to summarize my feelings, Diana Rigg, an attractive woman. uh, And uh, she is is able to... um, be displayed in various forms of undress in this movie in a way that I found delightful all the way through. But in terms of the movie itself, it's very Bondish in 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 some ways, but also because of its odd tone and the fact that it is trying to play around with these real life events and that there's just so much murder on display, it almost has kind of a Doctor Strange love vibe to it, right? Just the idea of of humor in the face of outright tragedy though this movie is played a lot lighter than that movie is even yes, yes. um and and certainly and i don't think that this movie is necessarily as intelligent as that movie either and that i think is to this movie's benefit you don't have a big zeppelin fist fight at the end of a movie <laughs> <laughs> that that is uh you know too serious about the political consequences of everything on display i think it's a lot of fun yeah the special effects are a little ropey here and there um it doesn't feel like they really like, like, there's some fun model model work, but sometimes explosions are just like an explosion in front of the camera. And you don't necessarily see the results of it. Most of the people are killed off screen. There isn't gore or violence that is is going to stick with you necessarily. It felt a little to me like like um, the early '70s Vincent Price horror movies like Dr. Fives yes, and Theater of yes. Blood where he's like slowly dispatching people except a comedic version where you are well I'm I'm sort of pulling for Dr. Fives and <laughs> those movies but <laughs> where you don't have to feel conflicted necessarily about it but if you think about it too much the moral code at its core is you know when Telly Savalas pushes back at it and says you know it's just a different we're just using excuse you could find any reason to say someone is bad enough to be murdered he's 100 percent right uh and the fact that he does that you can agree with him a little bit i think makes that kind of core conflict a little more interesting as well but at its uh at its center these are just a, a group of wonderful actors 
obviously hamming it up, having a great time, running around the world, trying to kill each other. I just had a ball with it. Like mm-hmm. I said, I think it probably is about 20 minutes too long. Uh, it just feels like it, it just kind of spins in circles a little bit. But I found the Zeppelin part a lot of fun, and that's not just because I love watching dummies being dropped out of a oh my Zeppelin God. to their death. <laughs> It's like, oh my god, he pushed him out of the he pushed him out of the Zeppelin and he immediately turned into a mannequin. That's right, all of his bones left his body. It's amazing. <laughs> Oliver Reed's so strong, just with one push he can pulverize his bones. So funny. I mean, I can kind of believe that to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Do I... they have a sword okay, two questions quick. Do they have a sword fight with like pieces of metal? Because I know that the that that um uh pink uh, is that his name? The German guy. Um, oh, yeah, Von yeah, Pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he has a sword, yeah. but I, I feel like Oliver Reed's character is just like fighting with a piece of metal. I could never really figure why, that out. That's interesting. You're right. Why would he? I mean, it's, it makes sense that Pink would have a sword. I think he always right. had it on the side. But why Why would Oliver Reed have a sword? Yeah, I guess no. he's using a piece of metal that is incredibly sword-like. <laughs> Either that or he, or he yeah, got yeah, the yeah. sword or he got the sword from the guy... Um, that he dispatched and, and took his um, mm, uniform. Maybe so. That's a, that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. It, it but it did, is fun it, to watch watch him sword fight. It did feel yeah. like a, a bit of lost footage to me. Like when they went yeah. to that sword fight, I felt like there was a part that had been cut out that would give me a little more setup. But it might have, uh, uh, you know, by that point I'm ready. I'm kind of hoping the movie will be over. So I didn't really worry. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, the other thing, though, that did did occur to me <laughs> And I don't think it's a big deal, but it is worth mentioning. Like, this is somewhat inspired by the fact that you know, uh, not just that World War One was in fact uh, ignited by an assassination, but actually at the beginning of the 19th century there were a lot of assassinations. Uh, That's and, very true. And, and I do think like there's probably an audience for this movie when it came out that actually knew enough history to go like, oh, this is a fun lampooning of an actual period in history. But there's always a small part of me, as you know, Doug, that's like, a lot of those assassins had actual beliefs, though, and weren't just like bored rich men <laughs> who wanted to like feel important, which is sort of what this movie is about. And so like, I, it's it's very fun, but I do wonder, like, watching it in a, in a more modern context, I wonder how many people even remember that little bit of historical knowledge to be like, hey, this is not real. Like, this is silly. But, like, it is set during a time when there were a fuck ton of assassinations. Like, this isn't... Yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not It's not. a total fantasy, I guess, is what I'm, is what I'm right, thinking. Right, right. So there's, right. there's always I mean, some part of me that's wondering about that, you know? I mean, frankly, Liam, it also came out during a time where there was a lot of well, assassinations. Hence why I thought it was interesting. You know, yeah. and, and the same true, thing. When we, when we look back on that time, the assumption is, like, every heinous act was committed by a frothing maniac who certainly didn't have any concerns that we should be worried about now. Right, right. It's just like, yeah, I don't know, some asshole. And it's like, well, some of those some of those people who made a bad decision had reasons, and we should maybe think about what those reasons were. But, yeah, no, or, or not, whatever, it's fine. Sorry, just a, some sort of lone nut. Nothing to worry about there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, by yes. the way, I just it's... looked up the. I just watched the part in the movie, and he does use a sword. Uh, okay, he, he does okay. have a sword that he takes from one of the other soldiers. So it other is soldiers. a legit okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to ask one kind of random weird question. When 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 Sonia Diana Rigg is taking the bath in the hotel room before she notices that there's a bomb on the top of the headboard uh-huh. of the bed, what is there like some sort of like bathtub liner that's made out of cloth? 
because it's I was like a thinking the foot. same thing. What it the heck really is weird. that thing? I don't well, know. Tell me I more. I, I don't think I noticed this. What, what is it's this? It's like, okay, so she's bathing in a clawfoot tub because that's the yeah, kind of I, tub Yeah, I actually have it on had. right here in front of me. Just... <laughs> but it looks like there's like a like a fabric liner that goes inside of the tub. Like it's, it's so weird. I don't know what that is. Oh. Almost like... So you don't have to clean the bathtub. You just take the fabric out and throw it in the laundry or something. Like, it's so odd. I don't understand what that is. I don't know enough about bathtubs from like the early 20th century to, to speculate on what the heck that thing is. I, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, it could just be... Oh, you're right. It's on. It's it's in the entirety of it. It looks like an extra towel that, for some reason, goes the entire length of the bathtub on the inside of it. How very strange! It is so weird. Maybe, maybe I can't even imagine. I'm gonna maybe have to. to I'm gonna have to look into it. I, I don't know what that's about. But I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to go down a rabbit hole of like 19, 1908 bathtub liners or something. Like it's gonna be. It's gonna be bizarre. Um, I do want to talk a bit about the fourth wall breaking in the last scene of the movie. And, and I think it's kind of funny that Diana Rigg runs in dressed as a nun, considering that the devils would come out like a couple years later. Um, but she runs in and she's like, oh, you know, get out of the castle. There's a bomb. And of course, Oliver Reed's already stopped the bomb. He's getting a medal. I like that they just have this like impromptu metal ceremony like ceremony like at the end of the wizard of oz when you know the wizard's like oh here you get this medal for bravery and you get this medal for having brains and he's just like got they've just got all these medals just hanging around and they're like all right let's just like give this guy a, a medal because he saved the world you know no big deal so um they're walking up to uh the front where you know all the heads of state are or whatever and he just turns around, Oliver Reed, and he just looks at the camera and he kind of like makes this face like, yeah, pretty good, huh? I did pretty good for myself. <laughs> and he kind of smirks and he looks back. It's just so cute. Like, I mean, it's 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 so I don't know where that idea came from. Like if he just did that or if they were like, hey, let's do this because, you know, this is like an edgy thing that we could do now, like breaking the fourth wall or whatever. But it's really, really cute. And, it, and at, at that moment, it's like Oliver Reed being charming, not the Yvonne character being charming. Because, mm -hmm. you know, y Yvonne does, he has his little double entendres, like when uh, when he dispatches the bomb and he comes in after he kills the gondolier. And, and uh, he's like, oh, you know, I really like your dress, or that's a very pretty dress you're wearing. And she's just wearing a towel, and then he, like, gets those bedroom <laughs> eyes. It's like, whoa, whoa. Like, it's it's really cute. But, you know, even when they're doing their sparring, you know, she tells him, like, oh, you're so annoying. And he just, like, walks right up to her. He's like, I have been told that. You know, it's, like, very, <laughs> it's very, it's so cute. Like, he's very cute in this. So when he does it at the end, it's kind of, like, just the culmination of, like, yeah, pretty damn charming like i'm not gonna lie like check me out i don't know i think it's really funny i just want to know whose idea it was i want to know where that came from i mean it did it did feel like at that in that era it was sort of a camp shorthand right just kind yeah. of the oh we're not taking this too serious type thing i mean right. i mentioned already that in that james bond does it he basically he says to the camera at the very beginning of 
on Her Majesty's Secret Service. That never happened to the the last guy. Not only speaking directly oh, to God, the camera. Oh, God, I forgot but, about that, yes. But, you know, overtly mentioning the fact that he is the replacement Bond at this point. But, you know, oh, it feels so very much, you know, in... And again, I, I know that everyone has a different definition of camp, but but you know, just the idea of like a a, a Batman ish sixties Batman st- speaking to the camera, doing asides to the camera, m- making sure that the fourth wall is as broken as possible, just to make sure that nobody can can mistake the movie for something to be taken particularly seriously. I don't think anyone was taking the movie very seriously at this point, but why not just have it as the icing on the cake, right? It did kind of throw me off when she comes rushing in and they're doing the award ceremony. There was some part of me that like it's such a shift that I thought, did she get lost? Like what is it the same day? Like I, I really found it a little disorienting for a second. And then I was like, Oh man, they really they really like decided pretty quickly what ha- I just feel like they'd have to be an investigation before they'd be like, Oh, so you saved like, all of us. Okay, sure. How, I well, how, the, how could he possibly explain why he was in that Zeppelin and why he decided <laughs> to save all these people? I just, if you think about that conversation, not only did he convince them, oh, I was there for the right reasons, but also that I saved all of your lives at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I have I discovered some information about this bathtub fabric. Uh, oh, good. Oh, good. I, I really this, need to. Uh, this is from an article about the television show Outlander, which I have not watched before. But on that show, they also had a bathtub with fabric on the inside. And the suggestion is that uh, uh, in the early 20th century or, or before that, bathtubs were often made of not just porcelain, but could be made of wood or other substances. Oh. And they would often put sheets down uh, because they were not hard to clean, right? Because they would already be in the bathtub. They would be cleaning them anyway. And it would keep people from shards, theoretically, uh, from the, the, the whatever uh, manufacturing process was used to make the, the tub, specifically interesting. wood. Oh, that's interesting. But it also, also in, in some cases, to keep the a person from inside from touching the uh, heated metal sometimes that could burn them from hot water. So uh, it's just a way to protect the person in wow. the tub itself. Interesting. Thanks for that. Now I know if I go to a place and they have a bathtub with a sheet in it that I shouldn't be alarmed. It's just like a totally normal thing. I would still I'm just going to take the sheets off my bed. I'm taking the sheets off my bed and tossing them in my bathtub right now. (laughs) (laughs) So does anybody have any final thoughts um, on the movie? Like anything that we didn't cover, anything that you want to bring up that you think is important that people should know? I felt bad for that guy who went to the bank with all of his money. Oh, I did They mistook too. for Oliver Reed. They just threw his money out onto the street. Oh, man. <laughs> At least it wasn't guy. a windy day. <laughs> I mean, it's a very fun movie. It's, it's amazing to think that the person who directed it was such an experienced director, very much near the end of his career, because mm-hmm. the movie does carry an energy with it that feels a little bit... Of its time, right? Someone who was very kind of in tune with the tone of the era and the kind of energy of the movies of that era. And um, and this is a movie yeah. that, you know, this is made by someone who probably done a lot of kind of stodgier, slower paced things. So I think he acquits himself, Basil acquits himself very well <laughs> in regards to it. But it's also, you know, this movie sat on the shelf for like almost an entire year because they just didn't yeah. know how to necessarily market it worldwide. And they had trouble getting the, with the title as well, I guess, uh, for releasing yeah. it in the United States. But, you know, despite all of that, 
Um, this is a movie that I'm I'm really glad. It seems that even uh, before this Arrow video Blu-ray was re- was announced, that this is a movie that had started to become a little bit more um, rediscovered over recent yeah. years. And, and yeah. it is a movie that I think it's a perfect movie to start this podcast with because even though it, it is clearly flawed in a lot of different ways, it is so much fun and it also shows off Oliver Reed's charisma to such an amazing extent because – even though Dinah Rigg is in in some ways the star of this film, you walk That's away true. from it. Think- You're right. You walk away from it thinking, "My God, Oliver Reed had this amazing presence to him." Yeah, very true. Very true. I like the idea that this came out the same year as Women in Love. I know. <laughs> That's crazy. It's crazy to me. What a and, difference. And I and I just like that. Well, part of the reason I like that too is that. Um, Yes, a part of what we're going to be talking about is that though there is an Oliver Reed thing, like there's a thing to him that doesn't limit his range, that he can, yeah. while still being fucking Oliver Reed, do a lot of different stuff. But part of that is the movie itself, because I would suggest that, you know, uh, those are very different movies and they have a very different Oliver Reed performance. But part of that is what the director is doing and not just him. He's not some chameleon who's like transformed into a different person. There's still something very Oliver Reed about him in yes. Women in Love, right? Yes. But it's but it's the film itself. And I think that will be an interesting theme for us. And And one of my wonders later in his career when he's getting less prestigious roles, mm-hmm. but he's getting them because he is Oliver Reed still, right? Yeah. Uh, to what extent the later performances are limited by the director and what they think of when they think of Oliver Reed, which I think becomes the problem, right? Is that because you're distinctive, people's imagination of you becomes atrophied. And so I'll be curious. And that might turn out to not be true. Great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, I really like what you said. And that might turn out to not be true. There's a lot of later Oliver Reed stuff I haven't watched because it looks shitty. But like, like, you know, maybe. And it it is. I've seen some of it. Yeah. So so we might find (laughs) that that's not the case. But I suspect that for a lot of actors with a distinctive persona, the imagination of the people who hire them atrophies as to what they think that they are capable of. And so that's, I'm, I'm just curious about that, you know. You know, it's interesting that the Roger Ebert interview starts with referring to Oliver Reed as an action star. They say, he calls him the bit Yeah, star I noticed that. come so out of England odd. since Michael Caine. And it's strange because, you know, he, know, he notes a few of his recent movies, including this one, that were action movies. And it really does reinforce that. But when I think of Oliver Reed, I don't think of him as an action performer and i think that kind of speaks to what you were saying liam there's these you know he get he get he got trapped in a few boxes throughout his career all of them limiting in one way or another but the oliver reed Mm -hmm. of the devils uh, or the oliver reed of i mean a number of the films that we're going to be covering or like the horror films of the late 70s early 80s i mean that once he took a step back from leading roles and did a lot of supporting work i think that maybe people's expectations of him were a little wider but mm. uh, it's it's amazing to think of a world of the late 60s where he becomes the lead of a franchise, right? Of a Bond-like yeah. franchise or Bond itself and what that could have done to his career. But maybe the kind of person he was would never have allowed that to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they. what's the thing with Bond where like 
while while you're playing Bond, the actor can't ever be seen in public in a tuxedo. Like, right? That's that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen. Can you be seen naked running between bars in public? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Well, yeah, I guess we should talk about. the Blu-ray that's coming out, which you mentioned, uh, that Arrow Video is releasing uh, later this month on the 25th. So it's going to be, you know, high-def Blu-ray uh, with English subtitles, um, you know, the trailer, image gallery, all that kind of stuff. There's going to be audio commentary with uh, Kim, Newman, Kim Newman, who is a pretty uh, well-known and well-respected um, film historian, and uh, Sean Hogan. Uh, I'm not familiar with his name. But um, I know that Arrow always gets really good people to do their commentary. It's a shame that, you know, no one's around to to kind of illuminate what it was like to work on the film. Because, of course, you know, a lot of those people have probably passed away. But there's also going to be a 30-minute appreciation video with um, a critic, broadcaster, and cultural historian Matthew Sweet called Right Film, Wrong Time, which just based on the name of that, that's I, I'm really intrigued to see that. Yeah. Um, I just mm-hmm. keep thinking, like, if this movie had come out in August of 1969 after the Manson murders, like I would have had a whole different problem getting getting an audience like, yeah, let's go watch the Assassination Bureau where they kill rich people. That sounds like a really fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, doesn't it? In some ways, this movie feels like a 1967 movie that came out two yes. years too late for sure. Yeah, it definitely does. Well, uh, do we want to talk about what film we're going to be covering in our next episode? Yes, I'm very excited about this. Uh, I, I know that, you know, this is one of the things we have, especially in the early days hmm. now of this podcast, we have our pick, right? And, right? and one of the things that we found in some of our other Cinema Smorgasbord podcasts that are non chronological is that you kind of. You want to hold back a lot of the heavy hitters, right? You don't want to jump right into the devils right away or women in love no. <laughs> or, 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 you know, some of his other kind. Of, but this is still a pretty big hitter. Why don't you tell us what it is, Leslie? Well, it is The Three Musketeers, which is the first of uh, several films directed by Richard Lester, who also directed Reed in, um, was it The Jokers or no, Royal Flash? Sorry, he directed him in Royal Flash. So this is a um, pretty well-known movie. It was very popular at the time. It was very popular even, you know, in decades past with Oliver Reed, Raquel Welch, Richard Chamberlain, Michael York, uh, Christopher Lee, Geraldine Chaplin, and Frank Finlay, who is, oh, even Faye Dunaway's in it. Um, but Frank Finlay is another, like, great British actor who was in so many films. Uh, Charlton Heston is in this. It's so because this came out in, I believe, 1973, it's got, you know, some of that leftover 60s sort of wildness. But then again, with the sort of 70s, you know, trend towards big, ridiculous costume dramas, you know, and sort of like crazy period pieces, like almost like where spaghetti westerns where you watch them and you're like, OK, this is clearly not of its time because people didn't wear this kind of eye makeup in, you know, the late 19th century. So you've got some of that going on in here. So again, there's that tension of a period piece, but film during a very specific time in history. This is a great movie. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. And it was also, I think, I believe it was shot back to back with its own sequel, which was must have been pretty Yes. And I, I think you're period. right too. There's definitely some good stories around the filming of this, 
some of Oliver Reed's antics with Keith Moon. Uh, do we have anything we want to plug before oh, we sign certainly. off? Well, uh, let's uh, let's start, Liam, with you. Uh, it's, what's going on with Cinepunks lately? Uh, you know, Doug, as usual, we're Cinepunks. We're putting out some great podcast content, whether that's my show, uh, the the flagship show, Cinepunks, or our friends over at Tomb of Ideas have been doing some great stuff. Uh, of course, the Carnage Report uh, is always covering the latest in horror. Uh, and, you know, uh, Twitch of the Death Nerve is, is your home for some of the most obscure and weird movies in the history of film. So check out all those shows, including ours. Uh, all of our latest episodes are available on cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E, P-O-N-X. And of course, if people want to dive into the archive uh, of all the various topics we cover on Cinema Smorgasbord, they can head over to cinemasmorgasbord.com. Uh, if you want to check out, uh, I believe that the Tomb of Ideas folks have just recently launched a, a new spin-off podcast called podcast m about uh gi based comics uh from marvel uh which you should check out over at cinepunks as well if you want to find out the entire <laughs> small archive of further reading episodes you can find that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com <laughs> where you can also of course subscribe uh check out all of our other podcasts under that umbrella including podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as the career of carol kane the career of steve buscemi alejandro jodorowsky uh, Paul Bartel, many more over at cinemasmorgasbord.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. You can, of course, follow Liam on Twitter as well, at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. I'm on there as well, at Doug underscore Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. How about yourself? Leslie, how can people find you? Uh, I am on Twitter as PopShifter. That was actually the site that I did for 10 years. It was a pop culture website. And I just kept the name because that's what people associate me with. So it stuck. Um, but I also wanted to mention that you can find the Further Reading podcast on Twitter as Further Reading. You can find us on Instagram as Further Reading and TikTok as Further Reading. So I'm really looking forward to putting up some trailers, uh, some, some trailers that I've constructed for these episodes and some other fun videos and things I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put up on the um, TikTok and Instagram. So that should be fun. And if you have any recommendations for the Oliver Ooh. Reed films that you'd like to see covered, yes. you can always, of course, contact us via social media on that Twitter feed or also on the Cinema Board site. There is not any set plan for the episodes to come after the Three Musketeers. And there's a lot of, I know for both Liam and myself, there's some big blind spots in terms of Oliver Reed's career. I'm very curious about his early days. I'm sure we're going to get into that yeah, eventually. Yeah. Uh, and, but but also some of his later films. Uh, I, I know that you know he kind of went out with a bang with Gladiator, which he passed away during the making of. But, I mean, there were a lot of films in those last few years, which I have not checked out either. I'm so curious just to see kind of the length and breadth of him as an actor. Yeah. That, and that, I don't just mean him gone, being naked. That could, have, and... that could have gone so many ways, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see his length at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to Further Reading. And we look forward to uh, talking about Oliver Reed next time uh, when we talk about The Three Musketeers. is a precious thing that we don't know the value of. But you will find when your heart learns to sing, life is the thing you love. There at your fingertips lies the answer to all your dreams.
Someone's caresses and somebody's lips Teach you how much life means Wait till you fall